Hey, welcome back to Jazz United. My name is Nate Chenen, the editorial director at WBGO. And this is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on WBGO. We are kicking off season two of this here podcast, and we're very excited to be back with you. Um, we could think of no more appropriate topic than the one we're going to cover today. <laughs> That's the truth. Impulse Records, celebrating its 60th anniversary, we're going to have a ball talking about its legacy, um, what they're up to now. And um, man, this this is I've been looking forward to this for a really long time when you first told me you wanted to do this. This is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Me too, man. And we, we should acknowledge right away that 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 you heard Alice Coltrane setting the mood and and claiming the space at the top of this episode. Mm-hmm. A piece of hers called Krishna Krishna from the brand new reissue uh, of Taria Sings, uh, which Impulse is releasing on the day that that this podcast drops, July 16th. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a new version of a, of a historic ashram recording uh, that Ravi Coltrane produced. Uh, and it's really just beautiful, beautiful stuff. It sure is, man. It sure is. I'm so glad that this is out and available now um, in its purest form. You know, um, shout out to to Ravi and all the great folks uh, at Impulse. But man, um, this is quite a legacy here, uh, the orange and the black. And they've also got a new box set that's come out, Music, Message, and the Moment. And um, mine shrunk a little bit in the mail. I'm still not over that just yet. (laughs) Uh, But uh, you've got the full-on box set on vinyl, the way it should be heard, perhaps. Um, What are your impressions, man? You know, the design, the sound, what they chose? Let's rap about it. Yeah, okay. Well, we should start by saying that this is a label that has always had this incredible visual iconography as you mentioned Mm -hmm. greg the orange and the black those record spines are you can spot them from across the room in any collection that's right and this this box set is a a very very sort of stylish uh attempt by the label and and the people at universal to to fit the the kind of narrative of this label into uh an accessible frame uh Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, you've got 60 years, uh, you know, with a, with a couple of interruptions, but 60 years of music, an incredible amount of output. What is the center of that output? What is the, the sort of distillation of the message? And this box set, I think, persuasively argues that this label has always been about a few different things, right? Um, one of them is spirituality. Um, Alice Coltrane uh, brings us right to that source. Um, and another is um, the idea of, of social consciousness and um, in particular, black consciousness. Um, this is a label that has always been committed to black excellence and to a freedom message, right? So uh, so all of that is on the table in this in this box set. On the LP box, it's it's four LPs uh, with cuts, from mostly from the 60s, I would say, um, but also stretching into the 70s, featuring music by not only John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane, but also 
Pharaoh Sanders and Stanley Turrentine, Albert Eiler, uh, Archie Shep, Shirley Scott, Charles mm-hmm. Mingus. So it's a really it's a really uh, strong survey, I think, and you know includes uh, some really excellent writing by by a few different people who really know this music inside and out. Indeed, indeed. And I think while Impulse has evolved um, to represent this consciousness, number one, the musicians deserve the most credit for that um, because, you know, Impulse in the beginning set out to make money like any other label. Um, They had to kind of discover what their situation was. And regardless of your feeling uh, uh, for Creed Taylor, you know, pro or against, you know, he's really the OG producer here. And he set out originally in 1960 um, to make jazz records that would play well, pun intended, with pop records. And essentially, you know, it's a situation where there's a parent company here. We're not talking about an independent like Strata East or even Blue Note or Riverside. This is ABC Records, Jazzwing. So they hire someone yeah. who basically is responsible for crafting a sound and feel with skillful individuals that ultimately would sell and be distributed right along with, you know, Paul Anka or, or some, you know, body on the pop side like that. Yeah. So I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge um, the cunning of, of Creed Taylor and, and those first couple of impulses that come out. Um, are really straight down the middle, man. You know, J and K, the trombone duo, um, Mm -hmm. with, you know, an amazing rhythm section, two amazing rhythm sections, one of them being um, Bill Evans, um, Paul Chambers, and Roy Haynes, who, to me on paper, I'll be honest, Nate, don't really look like the amazingly simpatico rhythm team. But when you hear them in action... Mm. And the fact that they were called back again on uh, Oliver Nelson's Blues and Abstract Truth, that lends to the genius of the guy that assembled those dates. And, and we have to give yeah. uh, Creed Taylor props. Well, we definitely do. And I think it's also a testament to just the energies and the culture at that time. Right. Because mm-hmm. like, let, let's let's look at the first five releases on Impulse Records. You mentioned mm-hmm. J&K. Right. So there are right. two K winding albums in that in that first five. There's uh, the, the second impulse release is Ray Charles genius plus soul equals jazz. Ooh, yeah. Um, I mean, Hall of Fame, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. <laughs> followed by Gil Evans orchestras out of the cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to Oliver Nelson's blues and the abstract truth. So these are uh, these are really landmark recordings. And this is right. this is the label straight out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Um so what what you have in that sampling of releases is is such a such a breadth of expression, but also this you know what all of these albums have in common I think is they're all synthesizing different currents in mm-hmm. in the the musical landscape at that time you know like there's there's nothing that is um, leaning back on established uh, languages except arguably the the trombone recordings which are pretty straight up hard bob right sure but the the ray charles album is is a hybrid um the gil evans album is like breaking new ground in Mm -hmm. large ensemble orchestration and oliver nelson's blues in the abstract truth which i'm going to talk about a little more later Mm -hmm. uh you know that that is that is kind of the for me the pinnacle of this kind of um 
midsize ensemble post-bop, um, yeah. you know, yeah. sensibility. So, so all, it's just like, it's not just Creed Taylor's astuteness, but it's also the fact that all of this is, is just happening at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not, sure. you could pick a much worse time in jazz history to start a, <laughs> a major label imprint than 1961. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then with the sixth release, we get to John Coltrane. Right, right. I often say the best thing that happened to John Coltrane in early 1961 is Creed Taylor signs him to Impulse Records. The second best thing that happens to John Coltrane in 1961 is that Creed Taylor leaves Impulse Records and lets John <laughs> Coltrane do his thing. Let's let's talk about Africa Brass for just a second yeah. here. Yeah. John Coltrane's um maximum opus in a big band setting. Um, these arrangements aren't by Don Sebesky or Quincy Jones even. Eric Dolphy and McCoy Tyner arranged this ensemble, which is a new mm-hmm. sound unto itself. But you still have Creed Taylor's ethos of bigger is better. You know, we'll get this on the radio because it has a beefier sound It's not just these guys raw blowing in a club or in a studio. There's some thought into this. There's some arranging. There's there's a a narrative here musically. Right. But with that second Coltrane release, which is actually the new producer, Bob Thiel's first night on the job, Coltrane is on location at the Village Vanguard. And I couldn't think of any more of an immediate contrast of an album than Village Vanguard one versus Africa Brass. Yeah, Train is is in yeah. his, you know, post sheets of sound, early modal explorations, but the rawness of a working ensemble sweating it out in a basement den um, has an immediacy, I'll say, that contrasts that fantasy that is Africa Brass. Both beautiful, both raw in their own ways, but I think that Village Vanguard situation is a catalyst um, for a new thing. Yeah, no, that is that is really beautifully put. Um, and I know that for myself, and Greg, I, I dare say probably also for you, um, I'm gonna put words in your mouth, but tell me if I'm wrong. If okay. I had to pick one or the other, it's Village Vanguard all the way for me. <laughs> <laughs> that is the real stuff. That, I mean, I love oh, Africa man. Brass, but, but the Village Vanguard, you know, 1961 recordings by John Coltrane and company, you know, not Mm -hmm. just the quartet, but that set of recordings means the world to me. Yeah. Um, But this is a good moment to acknowledge that um, this new impulse box, uh, you know, which could have opened with Ray Charles or, Mm -hmm. you know, one of those other albums we just mentioned, the very first side of the first LP is John Coltrane's Africa. That's right. Um, and I think that's a really meaningful inclusion and it signals uh, a direction. So why don't we hear a brief excerpt of John Coltrane's Africa on Impulse Records released on September 1st, 1961.
John Coltrane's Africa from Africa Brass from 1961 on Impulse Records. The arrangements there by Eric Dolphy and McCoy Tyner. <laughs> Just an incredible, incredible vibration and spirit. Nate, though, you mentioned this is the first tune on this new boxed set. And Ashley Kahn had a book that um, just had a great title that really encapsulates what Coltrane was to this label. Yeah, Ashley, my my good friend and colleague, um, did a really exemplary job with this book. It's a it's a label history. It's really it's really more of a label biography, you know. Uh-huh. Um, yep. And the, the title is The House That Train Built, The Story of Impulse Records. Mm-hmm. Um, and that title is quite intentional. And yeah. I think as you unpack it, you know, it, it kind of rings of hyperbole, but it really, it, you know, Ashley brings the receipts. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is not mm-hmm. a stray claim. It really does feel warranted by the history of this label and its roster. It does. I mean, think about it. Musicians were uncredited A&R men. Uh, when I think about Riverside Records, there was Cannonball Adderley. He led at least four artists to that label. Um, when I think about Blue Note Records, Lou Donaldson was responsible for the signings of Grant Green, John Patton. The list is long. But in John Coltrane, we have McCoy Tyner's first uh, record date, Archie Shep pharaoh sanders and albert eiler i mean you think Mm -hmm. about what is your starting five for this label if we're talking about message music uh, spiritual music those are the cats man and and it took someone like train partnering with a bob field bob field didn't know anything about the new thing he learned on the job with coltrane and their personal relationship um stewarded trust so much so that when he's like, hey, man, who should we sign, Train? Well, Archie's been talking to me, man. I think we need to give him a yeah. shot. It was just like yeah. that. You know, we, we, I feel like we've learned a few things in recent years about the, the process, you know, by which um, Bob Thiel trusted Coltrane and his band. It was almost like an open door at Rudy Van Gelder's studio. Um just go in whenever you feel led, you know, yeah. and, and record what <laughs> yeah. you need to record and we'll figure out where it fits later. You know, the, um, <laughs> the truth, the, yeah. the both directions at once, uh, release uh, a couple wow. years ago, uh, chronicling wow. 1963 that mm-hmm. I think that really highlighted just how, um, just how that relationship worked. You know, there was so much trust and, mm-hmm. uh, and Coltrane, I think, took full advantage of that trust without ever abusing it. You know, he, he really knew that this band was, was building a language and that he was working out, you know, these ideas that were changing so fast, you know? Right. And so, right. um, it, you know, it's, it's a miracle. It's such a, such a fantastic thing that he had that kind of relationship with the label that allowed him to chronicle this thing as it was, you know, like within the space of a few months, the sound could be completely different. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- those recordings, um, they, they capture something They you know, they're capturing lightning. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, aside from, from Coltrane's literal recommendation, bringing people into the fold, there's also the, the sort of shining, you know, exemplar that he was and what he represented the, the, the purity of intention 
and the mm-hmm. resistance to cliche and the sort of spirit message, like all of that becomes a beacon for, you know, certainly for the, the generation of musicians coming up right after him, but, but then, you know, for another 60 years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there's a, there's a wonderful quote uh, in one of the essays in this new box. So the, the, the box set has essays by Ashley Kahn, by A.B. Spellman, who was, you know, there at the time, and mm-hmm. by Greg Tate, the wonderful critic and um, musician. And Greg writes, because of John Coltrane, the Impulse label isn't just iconic among jazz imprints of legend, but graced with the prospect of immortality. And what struck me about that quote is that it's not just immortality in a sort of, this is a legendary musician who did legendary work kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I take that word also to mean uh, eternity. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. There was a there was a, a sort of um, gesture toward the eternal in mm-hmm. Coltrane's music of this period, and and so uh, so to me that word really sparked like multiple meanings. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. Um, there is something beyond the music about train and and i kind of want to read an ab spellman quote from this same box um Mm. that addresses that um extra source in the music um the performances are not quite programmatic you cannot affix a specific action or scene to a motif or phrase but they do present a heartfelt reaction to a historic theme so that's leaving things open to our interpretation. You know, uh, mm. Alabama can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, even within the human rights movement. And Coltrane never specifically said, I wrote this for this situation, but we knew what he was watching. We knew that right. he transcribed Martin Luther King's speeches into melodies. And just that abstraction, um, along with the titling of the tune, gives it an ethereal, otherworldly, beyond the music uh, situation. And it has allowed it to live on and be applicable even to the present time, that energy that we're hearing, that immortality that mm-hmm. you're talking about and that Greg is talking right. about. That's trained right. there because he's allowing our, 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 our mind to, to expand and, and grasp our own truths in it. Yeah. The selections on this box are are speaking that language, Greg. There, there's, you know, we mentioned some of the people on it, but it, we have to note. So Africa's on there, Alabama's on there, um, mm-hmm. but when when Max Roach is included, it's it's Garvey's ghost. Yeah, um, yeah. When uh, when when Archie Shep is included, it's Malcolm, Malcolm, Semper Malcolm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we've got. Uh, John and Alice Coltrane's Reverend King. Um, we have Ahmad Jamal's yes. The Awakening. Um, Charlie Hayden, yeah. We Shall Overcome. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is a very specific um, moment in terms of the music um, resonating with and speaking for a, a cultural movement and, yeah. and, you know, and, and as you say, human rights. Um, but mixed in with mm. those tracks are uh, songs like Albert Eiler's Music is the Healing Force of the Universe. And uh, of course, Pharaoh Sanders' The Creator Has a Master Plan. Um, And so there's a kind of 
there's a I won't call it a dualism because they're they're in dialogue with each other. This idea of um, activism and outspoken uh, righteousness on the streets and uh, mm -hmm. a kind of astral spiritual awareness that is in tune with the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the specific and the universal are in in full dialogue here. Absolutely. You know, that's how a lot of us were taught as black people. You know, you're, you're on the ground, but you're also in the spirit. And that duality mm -hmm. is what helps you not only cope, but to um, unify with people on the basis of uh, their character and their vibration. So uh, these cats are coming from a cultural perspective. But again, um, there's a label here that is willing to allow the artist to speak um, really quickly. Right. You know, I think about when Fables of Phobos on Columbia came out, Charles Mingus was not allowed to sing those lyrics. But, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years later, you know, on Impulse Records, you know, Archie Shep is is reciting a poem uh, on his anger towards the assassination of Malcolm X. That's a huge mm -hmm. progression, you know, from yeah. <laughs> a major label situation. Yeah. Greg, putting on your producer hat for a second, as you look over this box, mm -hmm. knowing what the framework is, is there anything that you uh, would slip on here if you could? Any exclusions that you want to rectify? I'll be honest with you. There's only one that I would add. I think they did a really good job, actually. Um, thematically, if they're going to address, you know, impulses, um, music and message uh, duality. And it's a less programmatic song, but the vibrations contained in it are apropos to what we're dealing with here. Duke Ellington and John Coltrane's In a Sentimental Mood. I think for our generation, that song has uh, escaped quote unquote jazz and been a part of, you know, our consciousness as, you know, the totality of, of, of black American music in all its forms. Our generation caught that song during a movie called Love Jones. But if you hear and you feel the expression therein, it's right in line with something like Alabama or right in line with something like, um, you know, Simper Malcolm. Yeah, there's there's some uh, stirring <laughs> going on. Uh, mm. musically and spiritually on that track that I feel like um, is really a cornerstone of the impulse experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I wouldn't have thought to go there, but I think you're, you're spot on with that. And, uh, and, and with that, you know, let's, let's actually toss it to a song that you feel you were sort of either pleasantly surprised to, to see here or just you connect with, we're going to put you in the DJ chair uh, that, that you <laughs> occupy so well. <laughs> let's, let's oh hear something goodness, and, and tell us, tell us why, why this track? This was actually the first impulse song that I ever heard. Uh, oh, this is wow. Pharaoh Sanders astral traveling and uh, it opened up a new world for me and made me curious about uh what was going on over there at Impulse? This is Pharaoh Sanders' Astral Traveling.
That was A Taste of Astral Traveling by Pharaoh Sanders from the 1971 album Thembi. And this often happens on Jazz United. But once again, Greg Bryant, my hat's off to you for um, precocious hipness. The fact that this was your first, uh, your first Impulse Records exposure is, is, is pretty dope, I think. This album is, is something special. And it, and it comes from, yeah. you know, one decade into the Impulse story. Um, so, so we know right. now that, that that was your first, your first Impulse. Uh, but, but how about your best Impulse? Um, I had this idea. Why don't we do a quick wow. Light, wow. lightning round? Each of us should pick one okay. album that has been, you know, really important to us. Maybe it, maybe it sort of came to us at a pivotal time, or it's just one that we keep returning to. Um, I think we should each pick three, mm-hmm. and and just to keep things interesting, let's let's put John Coltrane, uh, the John Coltrane Quartet, uh, off to the side, um, because <laughs> because I know okay. that he would pop up on both of our lists. So so John Coltrane gets yeah. a. Uh, Gets a, it gets an emeritus exemption, um, but yeah. Uh, why, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, okay. Well, I'm gonna cheat just a little bit because because you know I, I like to keep it a little uh, <laughs> a little interesting, not nefarious, just just interesting. Um, <laughs> Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison, yeah. their only album as co-leaders um, is a classic. Um, Again, this is something I found actually in college. This was first reissued on CD in the late 1990s. And most people didn't really know of this album at all. It was like a holy grail when we found it. But it's one of those albums that is this, I would say, accessible toe dip into the avant-garde. It swings hard, great melodies, but it's got all the exploratory uh, fervor uh, from some lesser-known uh, frontline horn players, Sonny Simmons, who recently passed away. Uh, rest in peace, Sonny Simmons. Uh, you hear him in his full glory on this album. Charles Davis, a lesser-known baritone saxophonist that I thought was John Coltrane as a pseudonym when I first heard the track uh, <laughs> Half and Half on this record. Yeah. Man, these guys, you know, they were kind of obscure, but having that backing of Bob Thiel and... Elvin Jones, Jimmy Garrison, and McCoy Tyner, and perhaps one of maybe two times they ever recorded together outside of the Coltrane Quartet. This is a great one, man. Um, It it is a great one. And Greg, I'm going to start calling you uh, Loophole Bryant because that was cheating. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Um, well, so my, my okay. pick is is from from the early days, um, uh, from the mm-hmm. earliest days. Actually, we've already mentioned this album, but I would be remiss if I didn't give it some love. This is Oliver Nelson's "Blues in the Abstract Truth," and I'll tell a quick story about it. Good one. Um, when I was yes. uh, when I was in high school, big band, you know, um, we mm-hmm. played an arrangement of "Hoedown," um, you know, for oh, big yeah. band, and and I it was a really pretty hip arrangement i don't know who did it um but it was it was sharp and i i really liked it and Mm -hmm. um our teacher said you know if if you like this you should go check out the recording so i went to my local record shop and i found a used cd copy of of uh 
blues and the abstract mm-hmm. truth. And I put on Hoedown mm-hmm. and it sounded quite a bit like the arrangement we had, but there's a moment when Eric Dolphy comes in on alto. Do you know how, you know the entrance of his solo? Yeah. Can you picture that yeah. in your mind? Mm-hmm. Um, it made me laugh out loud um, because it is so, it's so like, you know, Eric Dolphy enters the room like, you know, it, it sort of reminds me of like all those times when on Seinfeld, when Kramer would come into the room. <laughs> Uh, it was like, you know, it was like a trademark, just like, Mm -hmm. uh, man, what an entrance. And Dolphy's language was so, you know, I I was in high school. I hadn't listened as widely as you had by, by that age, Greg. Uh, so for me, Mm -hmm. Dolphy was, was really opening a door. Um, and then I subsequently, you know, the rest of the album is, is just stunning, you know, stolen moments, um, Mm -hmm. and the, the arrangement for that um, instrumentation with Freddie Hubbard and Dolphy on flute. You know, it's it's just, it's one of my favorite yeah. uh, post-bop recordings ever. Uh, and I think it I think it holds up beautifully. Yeah. So that's my first pick. Man, I love that. I love that, man. I love that. Um, my second pick is going to be a very obscure uh, Impulse album by one of the giants of the piano tradition, Ahmad Jamal. It's a 1971 recording live at the Montreux Jazz Festival. Um, there are actually two records recording, recorded there. Uh, one was called Free Flight, but the other one is the one I want to talk about. It's called Outer Time, Inner Space. And if you mm. ever see the cover of this record, um, it's a super trippy <laughs> uh, painting of Ahmad Jamal's trio in some weird jungle forest outer space reality it 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 totally is (laughs) (laughs) too psychedelic even for me but the music man um i grew up thinking this was the ahmad jamal trio i mean no slight to israel crosby and vernel fournier they were groundbreaking but i have to say man in my heart my Ahmad Jamal trio is Jamil Nasser on bass and Frank Gant as the drummer. Um, they did, mm. I think, five records for the label, including The Awakening. But Outer Time, Inner Space presents Ahmad in contrast to all of those, um, you know, three-minute tunes that had, you know, 20, 20 songs on an album. There's two cuts on this record. One's 15 minutes, the other one is 15 minutes. And man, I tell you, to hear Ahmad Jamal go in, all the way Mm. in, all the way out, arrangements intact, but there's this extra muscle in his playing in the early 1970s that has more to do almost with McCoy Tyner than it has to do with um, cocktail lounge piano playing. Not that Ahmad was that, but he often uh, faced that critique early on because he was so um, light on the keys. But Ahmad Jamal mm-hmm. played the whole piano dynamically. And this album yeah. puts him in the light as not only one of the most fleet masters of the piano, but one of the most percussive and expressive masters of that instrument. Outer Time, Inner Space, mm-hmm. Ahmad Jamal Trio. Man, that was an out-of-the-box pick. I love it. Um, my next one is not that. My, my next one is... Mm-hmm. Um, it's fully canonical. And in fact, it's included on this, um, on this 60th anniversary box, but it's so pivotal for me and and for many others. And this is 
of the, the self-titled debut recording by the Liberation Music Orchestra, which uh, was, of course, Ooh, Charlie Hayden's yeah. band yeah. with arrangements and conducting by Carla Blay. Um, and I should note here that Greg and really? I have, have given some love to Carla in, on Jazz United. Um, check out that episode if you haven't. Um, That's right. But, you know, That's right. this album um, was such is such a, a powerful, um, such a powerful statement. You know, it, it, it encapsulates the global struggle for freedom. Um, mm-hmm. it, it broadens mm-hmm. the frame beyond the civil rights movement at home. Right. It's it's really talking about colonialism. It's talking about um, struggle worldwide Um, and such an interesting choice to take songs from the Spanish Civil War and bring them into this, you know, Mm -hmm. orchestral frame with soloing, with playing by some of the some of the most sort of unruly improvisers of that moment. Um, But everybody just sounds so beautiful on it. You know, it's, it's an album that really, it always sounds contemporary to me. Um, my last pick is going to be a bit outside of the box as well. Charles Mingus in 1963 had a Coltrane-like um, prolific output on Impulse Records. Um, mm-hmm. Three albums in one year. Um, there is his... Um, Magnum Big Band Opus, The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. Uh, there's the Mingus, Mingus, Mingus album that has, uh, I would argue, definitive versions of Better Get Hit in Your Soul and or Decubitus and uh, Haitian Fight Song that's retitled, I think, to BS, something like that. But um, Charles Mingus Plays Piano is going to be my last pick because uh. we're hearing a master germinating the ideas in his head in real time for songs that became um, Orange Was the Color of Her Dress, um, Meditations, and you even hear him on a standard or two. I Can't Get Started uh, is on that uh, particular collection. But I was struck not only by the skill in Mingus's piano playing, but just being able to feel like I was sitting beside him in a studio looking over his shoulder and transcribing just the vibe that was in his head um, as a songwriter first. So that's uh, that's a that's a huge huge album for me. Charles Mingus plays piano. Yeah, yeah. I discovered that one in college, and I remember it it it, it blew my head open <laughs> uh, because it's so personal, right? <laughs> Um, it really does yeah. feel like you're you're somehow you have access to a part of Mingus's brain directly. <laughs> There's, you're, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's a great pick. Um, thank you for that. Um, and I guess I guess I'm closing here. And and you know it's funny. Yeah. You could go in so many directions with this with this little parlor game, right? And and I thought about. Uh, Roy mm-hmm. Haynes out of the afternoon, which would bring, you know, Roland Kirk into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about, you know, th- there's, yep. there's so many albums that, that my mind went to, you know, a bunch of Sun Ra on impulse. Um, yeah. But let, you know, yeah. if I'm being honest with myself and talking about my personal journey as a listener, um, th- mm-hmm. this next pick 
really was very important to me at a very specific time. And this is okay. uh, the self-titled debut album by a tenor saxophonist named Michael Brecker. This was released okay. Okay. Uh, on Impulse in an interesting moment, 1987. And mm-hmm. if you don't know this album, it captures this really interesting moment for the jazz mainstream, you know? Um, the band includes Pat Metheny on guitar, Kenny Kirkland on piano and keyboards, the aforementioned Charlie yeah. Hayden on bass, and the, the incredible Jack D. Jeanette on drums. I came across this album when I was, I don't know, probably 15 years old, and you know, uh-huh. Brecker, Brecker was already someone I was, I was hip to. He was the man at that at that time. You know, this was in the in the early '90s. You know, yeah, so this yeah. album was just a yeah. few years a few years behind us at that point. And mm-hmm. you know, the way that people obsess, you know, like younger younger players obsess over, uh, you know, Chris Potter or Mark Turner or you know Donnie McCaslin today. Right. Um, That's Brecker right. was that plus. You know, like Bre- Brecker was yes, the, the he was. supreme technician, but he also had, he had soul in his playing too, you know. And I worshiped Kenny Kirkland at the time because of uh, his role in, in Branford Marsalis Quartet. So, you know, just everything about this recording, um, it just felt to me like a dispatch from, you know, New York City, state of the art. And maybe we can toss to uh, a, a bit of music from it. Uh, but before we do, uh, is this an album that that has ever meant anything to you, Greg? I'll be honest to you. I've never heard that record. Seen it wow. a billion times. That's great. In the stores, never picked it up. Um, I'm going to have to definitely check it out after your enthusiasm for it. Uh, I came to Brecker in the mid-90s um, when he was uh, doing the, the Delta Bali Blues. I forget the name of that, that, that album, but um, mm-hmm. his quartet records with Tane on drums um, and and I think uh, the one before that had Jack Dejanet and Don Elias, perhaps. Tales from the right. Hudson. There we go. That's yeah, kind of where I came in. One. But yeah, I'm going to go back and check that uh, that debut album. Thanks for the recommendation, man. I feel like Tales from the Hudson is is in many ways it's kind of the one that is closest to the spirit of this one. Um, yeah, you know there are things about this album that are a little dated. Um, there's a, a track called mm-hmm. Syzygy that he plays on Iwi. Um, which at that time was new yeah. technology. Hey man, Dana Stevens is bringing it back though. He definitely is. I mean, Dana and others, you know, people like Morgan Guerin. So mm-hmm. it definitely is of its moment, this album. Right. But, you right. know, again, we're, we're being honest here. This, this album was, was huge for me. So um, it was mm-hmm. co-produced by Brecker and Don Grolnick, uh, who had okay. been, his bandmate in a in a band called Steps, and right. uh, I think we should hear the opening cut of Side Two from this album, uh, which was composed by Grolnick. It's called Nothing Personal. Michael Brecker on Jazz United with nothing personal from his debut recording. 
a pick by our very own Nate Chinin. Man, I got to go back and listen to that. But as we were talking about Brecker, um, he really points the way to the new generation of impulse. Uh, you know, when I think back maybe, you know, 20 years, what has happened on that label? Um, we've got its uh, Red Hot Cool project, you know, collaboration with hip hop artists. And you also have some really uh, stellar piano uh, led albums by folks like Alice Coltrane, Translinear Light, her last, I guess that's mm -hmm. official uh, recording that she made in 2007, I believe it was. And then also um, a rarer name that I'm a big fan of, pianist Rodney Kendrick has a stellar Impulse album from 2014. And then yeah. Sullivan Fortner, man, we can't leave him out. You know, his debut recording as well as uh, Moments Preserved, the follow-up. Man, Impulse has been busy. You know, the label has really reinvented itself in the last several years, you know, um, in a way that is fully conversant with the lineage. And, and by that, I mean, um, Impulse knows what it is and, and there's, you know, a celebration. I think in a certain way, the, the label managers have been watching closely what Blue Note does you know, in terms of mm -hmm. um, celebrating the catalog and the legacy and then trying to figure out, well, how does that express itself today? What is the what is the current manifestation of that energy? And and so under the leadership of uh, Jamie Krentz, who is a longtime Verve executive um, and, and he's now at the helm of Impulse, there's been a real um, awareness of like what's happening right now, you know? And so with that, we see the signing of the British saxophonist Shabaka Hutchings. And it's funny, right. Jamie told me that when Shabaka submitted the album art for the first Sons of Kemet album, um, you know, he commissioned an artist to, to make this kind of um, abstract folk uh, image for the album cover. And the mm -hmm. color scheme is, is black and orange. And they didn't nice. ask Shabaka to do that. He, he, he was really excited to do that, you know? That's um, great, man. So similar to Blue Note, right? When an artist of our generation or a younger generation uh, joins the family, they come with all the reverence that, that you would want mm. and, and hope for, you know? So Shabaka, he came and he was thinking about John Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders and Albert Eiler, you know? Um, Right. And and then they've done some interesting things uh, that, that you and I have talked about, like pretty, pretty fascinating to think that Pino Palladino and Blake Mills put out their album on Impulse Records and, sure. and that, that would be celebrated. Mm. It's it's a, a bit of a different look, but it but it makes sense. Right. Yeah, I think it's a great record. It's it's one of the best of the year, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with Sons of Kemet with Shabaka and the Ancestors, with Pino, you know, you, you see this uh, eagerness on the part of the label to chronicle, um, you know, sort of the, the, the current, like the state of the art, you know. Um, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's, not a, uh, it's not someone doing a Coltrane tribute. Um, it, is, it is a real kind of forward-thinking energy at the label right now. And I think that's also true of the very latest signing. Um, another person that we've talked about here on Jazz United. 
That's right, Brandy Younger, brilliant harpist, band leader, composer. You actually uh, debuted this single for us on uh, WBGO.org, and I encourage people uh, to check that out. Uh, Reclamation is the title of it, and man, I'm, I'm just excited to hear the full-on project recorded at Rudy Van Gelder Studios, right? Yeah, and Brandy is such a meaningful signing to this label. Um, you know, obviously there is the, you know, the analogy to be made with, with Alice Coltrane, one of her great heroes and, and predecessors on the harp. Um, and then there's her relationship with Robbie Coltrane um, and with the, the whole Coltrane family legacy. You know, it's, it's, it's not forced. It is, it is genuine. Um, right. But that, you know, that having been said, uh, Brandy is is coming from a different place. You know, she is she's really in dialogue with hip hop and with electronic music and with other forms of of kind of um, the post bop continuum. And um, with her partner Desron Douglas, who I know you know very well, Greg. Um, she, you know, she's really showing what the sound of today is. You know, it's it's like this muscular but also very lyrical sensibility and you know the musicians on this album include uh brandy's regular collaborators ann drummond on flute and chelsea barrett's on tenor saxophone um there are some guest appearances by ron carter um and marcus gilmore um you know it's it's just a very very assured outing i you know i'm pretty confident in saying that it's it's brandy younger's finest work to date we will uh, celebrate its release in the middle of August. Um, but in the meantime, um, you know, you mentioned Reclamation, the first single. Uh, we should hear some of that uh, as we as we wind yeah. down this episode of Jazz United. So let's let's toss it to Brandy and hear Reclamation. right folks keep your ears peeled for the new brandy younger release on impulse records coming out in august Uh, time now though to go to our this i dig segment where we like to uh make uh, some recommendations and uh, let you know what we've been checking out it could be music it could be not music but uh nate what do you have for us this week well if you are listening to this podcast there is probably a good chance that that you already know about this pick but um, I can't help it. I have to recommend the new documentary film Summer of Soul, which is a, a Questlove joint, uh, mm. or as he says, a, a Questlove John. Um, mm-hmm. This movie, man, it is <laughs> incredible. Yeah. You know, we talk about impulse and we talk about the music's um, bond with with the culture and with the community. This movie is all about that. Um, and it captures a moment that I... Uh, frankly, did not know enough about. Um, it is available on Hulu. It's also playing in theaters. 
And uh, I mean, it's the best music film you'll see this year. I promise. That's awesome, man. I can't wait to see that. Um, That's a great pick. Mine this week uh, is an album from guitarist Chris Combs, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, a friend of mine, uh, most noted uh, with uh, the Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey. But he's had a project for a number of years under his own leadership called Combsy, uh, a very uh, whimsical, amazing, uh, improvisational avant slash Americana thing that uh, I'm trusting is getting some great momentum. Uh, He just brought out an album uh, towards the end of the spring uh, from a live performance uh, at the Jazz Festival in Bern, Switzerland. Roche Blave is uh, the name of the um, work, and it's inspired by Mingus, Ellington, Ornette, Coltrane, uh, similar to the vibe of uh, what we've been talking about today on Impulse Records. Uh, Chris uh, crafts tunes that are representative of a certain spirit, Uh, of a certain time and hopes to uh, get us to heal and examine ourselves as we deal with, you know, human rights and the like. And one of the tunes on this that I'm particularly fond of is uh, a dedication to Sojourner Truth. So check out Combsy, y'all, Chris Combs. We want to mention everyone that uh, Jazz United is a production of WBGO Studios. And we are back for season two with a new producer, our man Trevor Smith, uh, who is doing great work at WBGO, and uh, and we are excited to, to keep this moving forward. Trevor's great. We're glad to have him here. He's our producer of Jazz United. Again, yours truly, Greg Bryant here, along with Nate Chinen. We want to urge you to subscribe to us if you haven't, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us on WBGO.org. Let us know what you think of the show, any ideas that you have. Uh, We love to hear from our listeners. And we've got a great episode coming up next time. Um, One of the greatest trumpeters in the world, Lee Morgan. We're going to talk about the complete Lee Morgan live at the Lighthouse. Stay tuned for that. We'll see you again next time.